except something happened that there we go good afternoon welcome to the cato institute i'm david bowes i am the executive vice president of the cato institute i'm also the author of an e-book out today but that's not what we're here to discuss so go to our website and look that up and we'll move on to the e-book that we are here to discuss um, there is a lot of concern over inequality in the United States today, or at least among people who write in magazines and newspapers today. My view is there should probably be less concern over inequality and more concern over slow growth. I always figure every day that Microsoft stock goes up in value, the wealth gap between Bill Gates and me and my job hunting niece goes up. But I don't think any of us are made worse off by that. What would be helpful to my niece is not that Bill Gates have less money, but that there be more growth and more jobs being created. And so that ought to be the focus. In his new book, I think Brink Lindsay worries about both of those issues, both of those challenges. And so he'll be talking about that today. Uh, this is, as some of you know, Brink Lindsay's third tour of duty at the Cato Institute. Before and between uh, those previous uh, experiences, he was a trade lawyer with cases and clients all around the world. So he learned uh, something about different systems of economics and politics around the world. He has been at Cato, senior editor of Regulation Magazine, founding director of the Center uh, for Trade Policy Studies, Vice President for Research, and now after a stint as a research scholar at the Kaufman Foundation, he is back here as a senior fellow with a project on the obstacles to economic growth. And he has uh, a new ebook just published by Princeton University Press. Last night in this auditorium, I introduced the new president of the Cato Institute to discuss his new book. And I forgot to mention the book in the introduction. So I made sure I wouldn't do that this time. The problem is, when I mention the book, I hold up a copy. And it's an e-book, so there's no copy. So I brought my iPad, and here <laughs> is what the book looks like if you buy it. Um, it's a beautiful, lively colored cover, uh, which you can get from Princeton University Press. The book is Human Capitalism, How Economic Growth Has Made Us Smarter and More Unequal. I will go ahead and uh, introduce now our commenter, Raihan Salam, who has had many hats in the past 10 years or so of rising to uh, the top of policy uh, commentary. He is currently a policy advisor at Economics 21. He's a columnist for Reuters Opinion. Uh, he's a contributing editor and frequent blogger where you probably see him most at National Review Online. So please welcome to discuss human capitalism, Brink Lindsay. Thank you, David, for the nice introduction. And it's great to be back at the Cato Institute again. Um, and it's great to be here today talking about uh, this new book of mine. Uh, so as, as David mentioned, the subtitle is uh, How Economic Growth Has Made Us Smarter and More Unequal. Uh, I actually personally uh, think the first half of that subtitle is the more interesting part. Uh, uh, and um, indeed, writing this book is really my second crack uh, at grappling with the transformative, liberating 
effects of modern economic growth. I wrote an earlier book called The Age of Abundance, uh, which looks at how consuming great wealth uh, has changed us, has changed our lives, has changed our values, our beliefs, uh, our norms, our culture, and our politics. Uh, in this book, I look at how producing all this great wealth has changed us, uh, how uh, being, how the, the structure, the changing structure of economic life has changed actually how our minds work. Uh, but the second part of the, uh, of the subtitle, uh, and more unequal, is, is certainly the more topical part, uh, since inequality has become such a hot-button issue uh, in recent years. Uh, and uh, that I, a Cato Institute scholar, am writing about inequality uh, is, has a kind of uh, man-bites-dog uh, element to it. Why uh, should a libertarian care much about inequality? One answer is, well, you're not much of a libertarian, um, but... I think I'm plenty libertarian, uh, and uh, I don't go in for that more libertarian than thou kind of stuff anyway. Um, but truly, uh, it is the case uh, that typically libertarians don't pay a lot of attention to this issue uh, because they think, and I think quite correctly, we think, uh, that equality is uh, not, uh, social equality is not an ideal uh, worth uh, uh, giving much credit to. Uh, for an insight into this kind of libertarian thinking, uh, I will uh, give you a quote that I found uh, posted today by a libertarian friend of mine on Facebook. It's a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was no libertarian at all, but uh, who shared uh, with libertarians a common enemy, and, and it's a good quote. Uh, In the life of society, liberty and equality are mutually exclusive, uh, even hostile concepts. Liberty, by its very nature, undermines social equality, and equality suppresses liberty. For how else could it be attained? Uh, so in, in this talk, I'm going to talk about the book by talking about why libertarians uh, should care about inequality. First off, I'll say <clears throat> the kinds of inequality that they're right to not care about. So I think libertarians are, are correct uh, in not being concerned with differences in income and wealth per se. Uh, as Solzhenitsyn said, uh, inequality is a corollary of economic freedom. Uh, people naturally have different abilities and different preferences, and therefore it is natural that they will experience different economic outcomes. Here's a really interesting statistic from sociologist uh, Dalton Connolly. He calculates that approximately three-quarters of overall economic inequality in the United States is accounted for by differences among siblings. Uh, so that is, within family inequality is a much bigger deal than between family inequality. Uh, so uh, if, that's the, if that's the case, then if we hold environment as equal as we know how, uh, that is, raise kids in the same family, still those kids are going to grow up to develop uh, different abilities and different preferences such to produce a lot of economic inequality. Uh, in the face of that fact, if you really think that any economic inequality per se is a problem, if you really think that total economic equality is an ideal uh, worth pushing toward, uh, then you're reduced to playing uh, King Canute, trying vainly to sweep back the tides. You keep intervening, you keep intervening, and differences will keep reasserting themselves. Furthermore, uh, the overall pattern of income distribution, I think, tells us basically nothing about either the justice of a society's institutions uh, or the well-being of its citizens. 
Uh, take, for example, the fact uh, that, well, let's look at the Gini coefficient. The Gini coefficient is the most comprehensive uh, economic measure of, of income inequality. It's on a zero to one scale. Uh, a country has a, a Gini coefficient of zero if everybody in the country makes exactly the same income. Uh, a country has a Gini coefficient of one if one guy in the country makes all the income. Uh, the U.S. is about 0.4. So is Ghana. Uh, so uh, in terms of inequality, we're on a par with Ghana. Uh, but uh, what does that tell us about uh, the, the relative merits of our policies and institutions versus Ghana's? After all, uh, in the uh, United Nations Human Development Index, which puts together GDP per capita, life expectancy, and, uh, and educational attainment, uh, Ghana ranks 135th out of 187 countries, uh, and we, com we come in at number four. Uh, so that suggests, I think, that uh, it, the overall pattern of income distribution can get that way for a whole bunch of different reasons, some benign, uh, some not so. Uh, and more specifically, I think libertarians are right not to be concerned about ra rapid income gains uh, at the very top of the income scale, the 1% versus 99% issue or the 0.1%. Uh, versus the 99.9%. .9%. Uh, the mere fact that the incredibly rich are pulling away from the merely well-off just does not strike me as a social problem uh, worth losing any sleep over. Um, let's make it personal and uh, compare me to uh, a hedge fund manager on uh, one end uh, and a telemarketer uh, reading the same script all day uh, to people cursing at him and hanging up in his face. Um, the hedge fund manager, uh, a really successful one, will make a thousand times as much as I do in a year, maybe more. Whereas I'll make five, six times as much as a telemarketer. So in terms of income, the gap between me and the hedge fund manager is huge compared to the gap between me and the telemarketer. And yet I think in terms of what really counts in life, and particularly what counts about your position in the occupational structure, the chance to develop one's capacities through interesting and challenging work, uh, and the sense of accomplishment uh, that comes from being able to make use of that ch chance. I'm quite sure uh, that the inequality between me and the telemarketer is much, much bigger deal than the, in than the uh, inequality between me and the hedge fund manager. In fact, I don't feel uh, the hedge fund manager's uh, inferior at all. Um, <clears throat> But there is a specific dimension of inequality uh, that I do think is a matter of real concern. And uh, that's why I wrote a book about it. And what we're talking about here is the growing divide uh, between the highly skilled and everybody else. Not the 1% versus the 99%, but basically the 30% uh, versus the 70%. 30% of Americans have college degrees. And that's a rough, crude, but useful proxy uh, for people uh, who are highly skilled, people who have high human capital. Um, <clears throat> at the root of this growing divide, and, and, and what do I mean by the divide? Well, the easiest way to, to quantify it is to look at the so-called college wage premium. Uh, back in 1980, the average college grad made about 30% more uh, than the average uh, high school grad. And, and indeed, that premium had been falling over time, such there was a a, a big, much-talked-about book in the late 70s called The Overeducated American. Um, but, uh, but since then, it has taken off. Uh, it was 30% wage premium back in 1980. Uh, it rose over the 80s uh, to 
about a 70% premium, and it stayed about there ever since. Um, and this divide, this growing gap, uh, is rooted, uh, ultimately, in a marked slowdown in human capital development. And here I'll give a real capsule uh, summary of, of how economic growth has made us smarter. Um, through much of the 20th century, uh, basically from when industrialization took off in the late 19th century, uh, America has enjoyed a broad-based connection between economic development on the one hand uh, and cognitive development on the other hand. And here's the basic dynamic. Uh, economic growth makes society more complex. Uh, so the richer and more advanced an economy gets, the more complex the society gets, along three basic dimensions. First, there's more knowledge, total knowledge and total know-how distributed throughout the system. Second, the division of labor becomes more far-flung and also more intricately specialized. And thirdly, uh, in our personal lives, as we get richer, we have more and more choices uh, that we are able to make uh, from the trivial uh, which of the umpteen uh, varieties of breakfast cereal on the grocery store shelf are we going to take home with us uh, to the life-altering. Uh, where am I going to live? What's my career going to be? Who's my friends going to be? Who am I going to marry? <clears throat> uh, and all three of these dimensions uh, go up. Uh, with economic growth. As society gets more complex, that means that the mental demands imposed on us by uh, the society around us grow up, uh, and we respond by developing our mental capabilities in ways that are quite uh, strikingly different from how most people have lived throughout history. Uh, and so we invest in human capital to keep up with complexity. Um, so that's how economic growth makes us smarter. Uh, the problem is that over the past generation or so, uh, the uh, connection uh, between economic development and cognitive <coughs> development has broken down uh, for large segments of American society. Uh, the demand for highly skilled workers has continued to go up over time as we enter into this knowledge information economy, uh, but supply has kind of stalled out. A couple of statistics. Uh, uh, back uh, in 1900, 6% uh, of Americans graduated from high school. Uh, it rose to 70% by uh, 1960, and it's kind of fluctuated around there uh, ever since. It's at 75% today, but it's actually lower today than it was back in 1970. It peaked in the low 80s. Uh, college graduation rates zoomed uh, in the second half of the 20th century, uh, 8% of young Americans had college degrees, uh, got college degrees in 1950. Uh, now it's about 32%. Uh, but the rate of growth has slowed down markedly uh, since 1980, and all of the growth has been amongst women. The male college graduation rate today uh, is basically exactly the same as it was 30 years ago. Um, so uh, as demand has raced ahead of supply, uh, the predictable consequence has occurred, and that is the price of relatively rare high-skilled talent has been bid up, and hence the rise in the college wage premium, and hence the rise of class-based inequality. So why should libertarians care about this phenomenon? I'll give you four reasons. Uh, first of all, this kind of inequality is not just the normal byproduct of a dynamic market economy. Uh, on the contrary, the human capital slowdown is a growing economic threat uh, to continued market dynamism. Uh, according to Harvard economists Claudia Golden and Lawrence Katz, about 14% of the total productivity growth in the 20th century, they look from 1915 to 2005, 
is attributable to improved labor quality due to increased schooling. So those huge gains uh, in educational attainment uh, that we've seen made our workers more productive, uh, and that provided a huge tailwind uh, for economic growth, uh, basically uh, 14% of it. Uh, and so if that tailwind has died out, uh, that means maintaining the kinds of growth uh, rates that we've enjoyed uh, historically is going to be uh, much tougher. Um, so uh, in this case, we're dealing uh, not with, uh, uh, with uh, capitalism working as it ought to, uh, but rather uh, with a phenomenon that is interfering with capitalism's ability to work as it ought to. Uh, second, this kind of inequality also represents a political threat to continued market dynamism. Uh, when, uh, when the rules of the game uh, are set up in a way such that uh, most people in society feel that they're on the losing end of things, relatively, if not absolutely, and relatively matters in politics. So if the rules of the game have left a lot of people disgruntled, uh, and if the players of the game uh, have the right to uh, change the rules when a majority of them agree on that, as they do in a democracy, uh, then uh, the uh, persistence of this kind of inequality creates instability and creates the threat that there will be changes in the rules uh, that diminish economic freedom, diminish economic opportunity, uh, and reduce uh, the long-term prospects for economic growth and for the kind of social progress that it makes possible. Um, and I don't think this is uh, just a hypothetical possibility. Uh, during the 1970s and 80s, we saw a huge wave in the United States of economic liberalization, uh, the root and branch elimination of all kinds of uh, cartelistic price and entry controls in energy and transportation and finance and telecommunications. And since then, we've seen this big run-up run uh, in income inequality. Uh, and since then, we've seen uh, a real slowdown uh, in the momentum uh, for uh, continued economic liberalization or even maintaining the levels of economic freedom uh, that we enjoyed at that time. Uh, the Democratic Party has turned away from the relatively pro-market uh, stance of the Clinton years towards embracing much more populist and anti-market rhetoric. And the Republicans have countered uh, not by uh, principled defense of limited government, which they realize hasn't pulled very well, uh, but rather by trying to appeal to the disaffected uh, white working class through cultural war topics. Uh, so uh, I think our politics uh, have gotten uh, much less libertarian uh, in the face of rising inequality, uh, and our prospects for uh, policy gains during this time uh, have gone down as well. So if we care about continuing to maintain and expand economic freedom, uh, we may very well have to care about the human capital slowdown. Third, this kind of inequality isn't just a reflection of idiosyncratic individual differences in abilities and preferences. It reflects systematic class-based differences in childhood environments. Uh, this problem, the problem of the human uh, capital slowdown, isn't visible across the socioeconomic spectrum it's located in that bottom 70%. Uh, here's some interesting statistics from University of Michigan economists uh, Sheldon Danziger and Patrick Whiteman. They looked at people born between 1956 and 1958 uh, and found that, uh, that the children of college-educated parents, uh, that amongst the children of college-educated parents, 37% of them, those born in the late 50s, uh, could expect to receive a, a college degree by age 25. 
by contrast amongst uh, uh, children of uh, parents with a high school degree or less, only 8% would receive a college degree by age 25. Now let's fast forward to more recent days uh, and look at uh, people born uh, between 1979 and 1982. Now the kids of college-educated parents, uh, 53% of them get college degrees by the time they're 25. So uh, family life at the top end is tracking the changes in the economy. As the demand for uh, more highly skilled workers continues to escalate, the supply from the the top third of American life of college-educated, highly skilled workers uh, goes up commensurately. Uh, But what happened uh, to... uh, Uh, People born in the late 70s, early 80s of uh, parents with a high school education or less, uh, the uh, percentage uh, receiving a college degree by age 25 actually went down from 8% to 6%. Um, So uh, one explanation for this stark class divide in in human capital levels uh, is genetic. Uh, uh, That is, college-educated people are smart, they've got Smart genes, they pass their smart genes on to their kids, and their kids follow in their footsteps. Uh, I think there's something to that story. It's important. Uh, But uh, I argue in the book at great length that this pattern uh, of uh, class-based differences in human capital levels can't be attributed entirely to genes. Uh, I argue uh, that differences in family structure, parenting style, and community influences add up to a big factor in explaining how low human capital levels tend to get passed from generation to generation. So if that's true, then here's the blunt truth about American society today. The number one way to succeed today is to pick the right parents. So there's a chicken and egg relationship uh, between human capital levels and socioeconomic status. Uh, Adult human capital levels are the primary determinant uh, of adult socioeconomic status. That's fine. Uh, But childhood socioeconomic status is the main determinant of adult human capital levels. And that's not so fine. Um, In particular, uh, it should make libertarians very uncomfortable uh, because of the importance we ascribe to the ideal of personal responsibility. The idea of individual personal responsibility is central to the libertarian vision. You're free to do whatever you want, uh, but you face the consequences of your actions. Yet, if it's true that by the time people actually become legally responsible adults, circumstances not of their own choosing, uh, that is, how they were raised and who they grew up with, uh, may have prevented them from developing the capacities they need to thrive and flourish, then personal responsibility starts to look like a more hollow ideal. Uh, So... Like it or not, uh, libertarian ideas are not going to flourish in a world where the ideal of personal responsibility seems to ring hollow. Fourth, and the final reason I'll give for why libertarians should care about human capital inequality is that libertarian ideas are extremely important to the prospects for addressing uh, and remedying it. Now, it's true that in the book, I also I do put forward uh, some uh, government interventions Uh, that might possibly do some good uh, in mitigating uh, the human capital slowdown. Things like early childhood uh, intervention uh, to help uh, kids from disadvantaged uh, backgrounds be ready for school. Uh, Things like uh, uh, subsidies for low-skill workers uh, to convert the welfare system even more to one that encourages uh, participation in work uh, to one that uh, historically encouraged uh, joblessness and family breakdown. Um, 
and uh, uh, that strikes people as uh, as unlibertarian, or uh, and certainly, by, according to some brands of libertarianism, uh, all of those kinds of functions should be handled uh, by private charity. Uh, but uh, I will uh, hide behind the authority of uh, of those libertarians who. Uh, who have supported uh, a government role uh, in providing a social safety net for people at the bottom. Uh, we're actually in the Hayek Auditorium, F.A. Hayek, uh, supported uh, uh, such a safety net. Uh, so did Milton Friedman, uh, in whose name Cato uh, biennially awards uh, a prize for advancing individual liberty. Uh, so I think I'm an okay company. Uh, but uh, really, if you're looking at the things that I believe can make the biggest impact uh, on changing this dynamic, you're looking uh, at eliminating or reducing uh, bad government interventions rather than con concocting new ones. Uh, the slowdown in human capital development, uh, after all, represents a real failure of sectors that are dominated by government. Uh, on the one hand, welfare and social services, and on the other hand, uh, education. Uh, welfare policies, as I've mentioned, have uh, for decades perversely subsidized uh, joblessness and single parenthood. Um, uh, in addition, other government interventions have made matters worse as well. Uh, the drug war in particular uh, and its connection to mass incarceration uh, has been catastrophic, particularly for African Americans, uh, and has been a bulwark, I think, uh, of, uh, of uh, the intergenerational transmission of poverty. Um, other kinds of regulatory interventions like uh, occupational licensing and land use regulation uh, strangle opportunity for upward mobility uh, through entrepreneurship. Um, and then, of course, the central social institutions in our society for human capital development are the nation's schools. Uh, and they are, uh, in, at the K through 12 level, 90% uh, government schools. Um, and uh, the whole promise of public schooling was uh, that it was a guarantor of equality of opportunity. No matter what your background, come to school, you're admitted here, and we will give you the skills you need to thrive and flourish in American life. Uh, that promise uh, has been broken, uh, as K through 12 schooling today serves uh, not to mitigate uh, class-based differences uh, in human capital, but rather to perpetuate. Uh, kids show up uh, at preschool now uh, with quite clear and dramatic uh, class-based differences uh, in uh, test scores uh, and school readiness. And then over the primary and secondary school years, uh, those differences just grow even bigger. Um, so major structural reforms uh, in uh, schooling are needed uh, and uh, along the lines that uh, libertarians find congenial, basically structural, structural reforms that increase competition and open the scope for entrepreneurial innovation. So in conclusion, uh, when Progressives complain about rising inequality. The accompanying narrative is usually uh, that uh, the market is unfair and that workers are being underpaid for their contribution uh, to the joint social product. Uh, I think uh, uh, there's really no factual support to that narrative at all. I don't know of any market failures uh, in, in labor markets uh, that would cause uh, workers to receive less than their marginal product, which is uh, what uh, how things are supposed to work in a competitive uh, market. Uh, the problem isn't uh, that workers at the bottom half of the pay scale are being systematically underpaid. The problem is that workers in the bottom half of the pay scale uh, don't have skills that are very valuable to people. 
Uh, and so if you blame capitalism, you're just shooting the messenger uh, and not dealing uh, with the real problem. Uh, libertarians, by pointing out uh, that, uh, that this kind of class-based inequality is really the, the dark lining of a silver cloud <clears throat> of, uh, of capitalism's increasing demand for highly skilled people, uh, can, I think, uh, turn the debate around and take the intellectual offensive. Uh, and towards that end, uh, I've written this book. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brink. And now we'll hear from Raihan Salam. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, and thanks to Brink for writing such a wonderful and stimulating book. Um, I wanted to start by talking to you about Social Security Disability Insurance, an incredibly exciting subject that I'm sure you guys are, are very knowledgeable about. So you have this really interesting program. Uh, and in the 1970s, Jimmy Carter, who is, of course, a guy who championed deregulation, among other things, decided this program isn't working very well. We have a ton of people who are enrolling. We need to kind of roll this back. We need to constrain the growth of this program. So he started making efforts in that direction. And then Ronald Reagan continued making efforts in that direction as well. The trouble is that Reagan made those efforts at a time when the country was in the midst of a really brutal recession. And so what happened is that there was basically large-scale grassroots resistance to these reforms. Uh, and there was basically a kind of nullification that happened at the local level. And then Congress decided, we're going to reform the Social Security Disability Insurance Program so that people who report having, for example, back pain or mental illness will be eligible for disability. Now, it turns out that this didn't actually lead to a massive increase in the disability roles um, for a long period of time. It did initially. But then as the economy recovered, the role started to go down, and people thought, OK, no big problem. But then something happened. Uh, in 1991, we had a recession under the first President Bush. Uh, and then you suddenly started seeing a very steep increase in the disability roles. But then again, you had an economic expansion during the 1990s, so those roles started to kind of go down again. But then under the most recent sharp recession that we had, we saw those numbers go up yet again. And they went up to kind of new high levels. And they continue to be at very high levels. And so now the Medicare program, about a tenth of its spending goes to folks who are on Social Security disability insurance. So, so why do I mention this? I mention this because when you think about the modal guy on SSDI, think about someone who is about 50 years old someone who has a high school diploma or less and is looking at their economic prospects. This person might not like the idea of being on SSDI, uh, might prefer the idea of being in meaningful work. But the thing is that meaningful work, that comes and goes. That's not necessarily very reliable. Whereas if you have social security disability insurance, you're getting a very stable income. And you're also getting guaranteed health insurance. Uh, so to people who are very liberty-minded, the idea might sound deeply unattractive, but the thing is that that person who is going on disability insurance at age 50, age 55, they might be thinking, you know, I just have a few more years before I'm going to be retired, my economic prospects are sufficiently bleak, and that's, you know, just what I'm going to do because that's all I can do. And perhaps I could, you know, work off the books in some capacity, but you're not going to make a strenuous effort to be taken off of the social security disability insurance roles just out of some deep sense of justice. Uh, and I think that that's part of how I tend to think about these things the way that these programs have evolved. You're looking at people who are embedded in communities that look very different now than they looked even 30 years ago. Uh, there's this really amazing essay called A Darwinian Interpretation of Modernity that talks about how pre-modern societies 
are kin-based. You live in kin-based social networks. And a modern society, in contrast, sees the rise of non-kin-based social networks. So you know, the very crude idea is that uh, if everyone in your network is concerned about your ability to reproduce, they govern your behavior in different kinds of ways. They exercise shame. They nurture and discipline you in ways that are designed to kind of uh, you know, advance the well-being of that kin-based group. Whereas in a non-kin-based group, we seek meaningful identities of different kinds. So the question is, how do you actually sustain a society built on these non-kin-based social groups? Uh, because you know, when you're talking about the children that Brink talks about in his book so compellingly, um, and you're talking about this idea, you know, the master narrative of Brink's book is that in our kind of economy, you want people to be able to master complexity. And that's actually a very complex process that requires an intimate knowledge of the child in question. That requires being able to discipline and nurture people in very particular, specific ways. But when you leave the task of nurturing and disciplining to the bureaucratic state, it can't be incredibly responsive to that because it actually, the bureaucratic state can actually know individuals, it has to know a class of persons and has to treat a class of persons equally. So I think that that's why a lot of us on the political right are great believers in civil society, because this is the space of imagination. This is the space uh, in which you can break free of institutional isomorphism. This is the space in which you can do things in new and innovative ways. The problem is when we're talking about cultivating human capital along the ways, in the ways that uh, Brink has described, that's a question that's not just about schools. It's also about a panoply of other social institutions as well. So uh, I noticed that Brink talks about the distinction between the 30% and the 70%, uh, talking about the 30% of adults who have a college education. So the interesting thing about that 70% is that that group is divided too. You have the 58% who have a high school diploma and the 12% who don't have a high school diploma. Now, in the past, those groups had very, very different social outcomes. And now, implicit in what Brink had said is that the social outcomes are starting to look very, very similar for these two groups. Uh, so you, know, you basically have far more fragile families in this group. Children who grow up in, uh, to parents from those two groups are far more likely to have a disrupted life. Uh, they're far more likely to encounter all kinds of chaos in their life and disorder. So the thing is that that actually has very powerful implications for civil society as well. Because when people have some modicum of stability, they're able to resist encroachments from the state in a different kind of way. They're able to build parallel institutions. They're able to actually think creatively about the institutions that they don't necessarily need just themselves, but also that their communities might need. And that's why when you compare communities uh, that consist primarily of college-educated adults, you have a very different and much richer associational feel. You can even think about this in the context of the drug war. If you're an upper middle class American, the drug laws basically don't apply to you because you know, essentially you can use any number of drugs in the privacy of your own home and you're not actively being surveilled by the police. Whereas if you live in, for example, upper Manhattan or the South Bronx, your private space is public space and your behavior is actively surveilled. So I encourage you to think about things in that way. Uh, those of us who believe that private solutions, civil society solutions, are the way to address some of these concerns that Brink raises, you know, I, I absolutely share that view. The problem is that there's actually a failure of imagination in that space, precisely because the number of bodies that we used to have that could be deployed to think creatively to kind of solve these problems in new ways, the number of people has actually been shrinking as you see this dramatic increase in the fragility of kind of personal and social life. So, 
When you look at cultural conservatives, they react to this in a very particular kind of way that we're all very familiar with. Their reaction is, uh, you know, and Brink has memorably talked about how people on the political right want to go back to the 1950s in terms of family structure and society, and people on the left side of the spectrum want to go back to the 50s in terms of economic life. So the thing is that, you know, that's something that a lot of people retreat to, this idea that, well, we need to return to kind of the robust families. We need to return to this model of marriage that only existed for a very short period of time. So maybe that's not the right way to do it. Maybe we actually need to embrace new family forms and household diversity. But if we do that, we need to think more deeply about, well, are these new forms going to be robust enough? How are they changing? Are they actually innovating in response to social conditions? Because, of course, this household diversity has arisen in response to the expansion of the social welfare state. And so we could say that, well, the retreat of the social welfare state will actually force people to live in new ways and actually develop those innovations that will allow society to flourish. That could very well be true. But again, think about that 50-year-old. Think about the 50-year-old on SSDI and the kind of limits of their horizons, their social and political horizons. And then think about the number of people who've been socialized and embedded in a society in which we expect the state to provide these kind of very thick safety nets for us. And think about how one is educated as well. Have you been educated for real independence? So what I would urge you guys to think about is that the battles over the size of the state are absolutely crucial and absolutely important. But there's this way in which, uh, particularly those of us who grew up uh, in stable families uh, and sort of have had the good fortune of having a college education, haven't thought very rigorously about what are going to be those new institutional formations and cultural formations outside of the state that are going to allow people to flourish. Thank you very much. Raihan, Raihan, let's uh, take questions here. Um, please raise your hand. I will call on you and wait for a microphone to get to you right there in the middle. Okay, can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay. Mr. Lindsay, um, I was very interested in your comments, and I agree with many of them. However, you didn't say anything about the impact of immigration on our workforce and how it affects our families when someone loses a job to an immigrant, particularly an illegal one who is here uh, earning a much lower wage. Uh, or, for instance, the fact that we limit the number of doctors that we produce every year, and so we bring in foreign doctors. I have nothing against foreign doctors. I'm just saying, I think, so many of the things that, that have happened over the years have been the result of, of uh, uh, political choices that were made that I think are very, very poorly, were very poorly thought out. Um, I, th I think of, uh, in my own neighborhood, all the landscaping jobs are, are done by um, illegals. And that certainly doesn't help um, the painter who used to paint my house, he gave up. He was an American, born here. He gave up. Okay, question? So uh, I, I have a, a very different point of view. Uh, that is that I think that the net impact of immigration, most of which has been low-skilled immigration from poor countries, uh, is uh, overwhelmingly positive, uh, both for the country uh, in that uh, we now have access uh, to these willing workers uh, that we didn't before, uh, 
and uh, also, even more dramatically, uh, to the people themselves who count and who have been able to uh, multiply their income many-fold by the uh, mere crossing uh, of a political border. Um, so uh, who amongst the native-born uh, are uh, might be negatively affected? Um, the best economic studies show that outside of one category, uh, it's pretty clear uh, that Americans gain in income because of immigration. The one category where it might be otherwise is high school dropouts. Uh, and the measured drop in their income due to increased competition from low-skilled immigrants is somewhere from insignificant to 8%. Uh, so it is true that there are winners and losers in immigration, uh, and there are some very mild losers amongst uh, native-born Americans. Uh, but uh, the clear majority of native-born Americans win big time, uh, and the immigrants themselves win, and, uh, win enormously. Uh, it is true uh, that all of this uh, uh, worsens uh, our measured inequality statistics. If you have a big influx of low-skilled, low-income people, uh, then that will shift the median income down over time and will make median in growth, uh, income growth look slower and will make uh, our overall uh, spread of incomes look bigger and therefore our Gini coefficient be higher. Uh, but uh, that's only because you're measuring within one country. If you measure global inequality, uh, then the effect of mass immigration in the United States has been a sizable decrease in inequality uh, because of the huge Im uh, in income gains uh, by those immigrants. Uh, so uh, absolutely uh, uh, bringing in a large influx of low-skilled people from, uh, from less developed uh, uh, societies that are much less complex than ours uh, increases the challenge uh, of, uh, of human capital development. Uh, but the whole promise of capitalism, I believe, uh, is to expand opportunity for people. Uh, and so we, should, we, sh we had, should not turn away from that. It certainly has had a big impact on the school system in Montgomery County, I can tell you that. But also, uh, you were talking earlier about uh, uh, graduates going, or uh, college-bound kids uh, today, why would my son want to go into computer sciences or anything like that when he has to compete with um, all of these uh, much lower-paid H-1B visa workers? Oh, heavens. My middle, my middle son is uh, studying computer science right now, and his prospects are bright. Well, good for him. Okay. And, and, and income amongst computer uh, uh, programmers is fine, uh, and uh, trends are fine. Uh, so, uh, what what the the the, the, okay. the, infusion, the infusion of this talent has merely helped to accelerate the growth of this sector and create additional opportunity. So, uh, uh, this is that is not an area of zero sum conflict at the high end of the skill level. Okay, right there. Thanks. I'm Ben Woldovsky with the Kaufman Foundation. Um, Brink, I wanted to ask you to speak a little bit more about the role of government in uh, particularly early childhood intervention. Um, you know, of course, the work of Jim Heckman, the economist of Chicago, who's talked about <clears throat> the, uh, you know, the need to, to, to start early. He's pretty comfortable with the government role. There's a new book out by Paul Tuff that talks about the importance of grit and, uh, and the, the, again, the, the idea that government can do something. Uh, to try to change families and mold families in a way that creates uh, not only preschool programs but, but changes within households and how children are, are nurtured at a very young age. So I, I think it's not a, a big stretch to say this is a form of paternalism. And I'm wondering if you'd subscribe to that. You know, you've been, I think, the father of the term uh, 
liberalitarianism, and I wonder if you'd, uh, you, you'd sort of own up to being a paternal libertarian. So uh, that's, a, that's a big question, and, uh, and, and let me back up and, and address the, uh, the reasons why uh, early childhood interventions, uh, whether funded by private foundations or uh, funded by uh, tax dollars, uh, look to be a plausible response uh, to, uh, to low human capital levels. Um, as I said, there's a big role uh, for, for culture in, in determining uh, a child's uh, long-term socioeconomic prospects. Uh, and what do I mean by that? Uh, first, family structure is a big deal. Uh, uh, the, although uh, college-educated uh, divorce rates uh, were always somewhat lower than, uh, high school, than, than, than divorce rates amongst high school-educated folks, they both went up a lot in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and then since the 80s, uh, the uh, college-educated divorce rate has plummeted, uh, while uh, the divorce rate for everybody else uh, has gone higher. Uh, single motherhood amongst college-educated women, uh, it's like 5% of babies born to college-educated women are born outside of marriage. Uh, the overall statistic for American today, 41% of American babies are born to single mothers. Uh, so huge differences in family structure. Even if we're talking about intact homes, we also see big differences in the amount of time parents spend with their kids. Very interesting research recently showing over the past 20 years uh, a, a big increase in the number of hours parents uh, spend with their kids. Uh, but it's overwhelmingly located, uh, concentrated amongst college-educated parents. There's been some increase uh, in the rest of society, uh, but overall the parental attention gap uh, has grown. Um, how does that matter? It matters a lot for intellectual stimulation amongst other reasons, but I'll focus on intellectual stimulation. Uh, there are a pair of psychologists, uh, Todd Risley and Betsy Hart, uh, who did very intensive uh, uh, live-in work with people across the socioeconomic spectrum, just counting the number of utterances that parents made to their children uh, and classifying them as positive or negative. Uh, and uh, the upshot was that by the age of three, uh, a child from an upper middle class home has heard 45 million utterances from his uh, parents. A child from an underclass home has heard 15 million. So a 30 million word gap. Uh, also, the, <clears throat> the preponderance of utterances in the, at the top end are positive, teaching, reinforcing, encouraging, whereas the preponderance of the utterances at the low end are negative. They're admo admonishing, get your hands off that, stop that. Uh, so, in terms of stimulation, there's a dramatic difference, and I think that, uh, also uh, the kids at age three uh, from the upper middle class homes have twice the vocabulary of the kids uh, at the bottom. So when they show up at school, who's going to read better? Who's going to get teachers' attention to be, you know, the kid they like? Who's going to have a more positive attitude about school? Uh, the kid that's been brought up with greater stimulation. So. Uh, there are real deficits, uh, particularly uh, in the underclass, uh, that, that make it uh, very difficult uh, for a child that isn't really exceptional to break out of that poverty trap. Uh, and Jim Heckman has studied uh, uh, these isolated, very small uh, programs uh, of working three or four hours a day with children when they're one, two, three years old, uh, and basically giving them the kind of stimulation that they're not getting from, uh, from home. Uh, and the results are real and significant, 
but hardly miraculous. Uh, the programs that Heckman relies on, uh, the Perry Preschool, the Abyssidarian Project, uh, they're, uh, they're from back in the 60s and 70s, but the cool thing about them is there's been fantastic longitudinal follow-up. So we track the kids that were in those programs until their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, so we know exactly what happened to them. Uh, and uh, what we did not see was uh, the magical transformation of underclass kids into upper middle class white collar professionals. Uh, what we did see was uh, uh, sizable uh, gains uh, in the participant crowd versus the control group in uh, uh, high school graduation, uh, in uh, lower likelihood of teenage pregnancy, in lower likelihood of crimes committed and being arrested. Uh, and so Heckman basically argues this is this is not a miracle, but it's cost effective. Uh, and putting it in the grimmest possible terms, uh, we'll spend a lot less money uh, through these uh, interventions on three-year-olds than we will on jails down the line uh, if we didn't have those programs. Uh, so I think there is a clear logic behind supplementing uh, uh, the, the, uh, the stimulation that, that uh, disadvantaged kids get at home. I don't see anything paternalistic about it at all uh, because it's a program available to parents. It's, they're not coerced into the program. It's simply giving them an additional option. Um, so uh, the big, big problem uh, as far as uh, whether this could really be uh, a big part of the solution is whether these small intensive projects can be scaled. And so far, the evidence is pretty depressing that they can't. The biggest large-scale uh, uh, early childhood intervention program we have is Head Start. Uh, and it doesn't do much. It looks like there are gains when the kids are in the program, but they all wash out a year or two later. Uh, so it's one thing uh, with a small program with really passionately dedicated uh, people who believe in the project and whose careers are dependent upon its success you get good results, but when you spread out a program to scale and have ordinary people doing this as their day job, uh, the results don't look so good. Uh, so I, I have quite a sort of qualified and measured uh, discussion of early childhood intervention in the book precisely because of that problem of scaling. Raihan, do you want to comment? Uh, I agree with everything Brink had just said. I mean, I think that Mike, but I will say one thing, and this is, and, and Brink was referencing this a little bit, is that, you know, kind of we have those studies from that era. And so one thing that is actually somewhat troubling is that we haven't seen more systematic efforts uh, in order to kind of see, you know, kind of more rigorously evaluate this because to some extent people decide, hey, universal pre-K is great. So let's just kind of back that because we have these studies that frankly, you know, kind of might be problematic. They're kind of quite dated and what have you. Do we have the data that we need for it? So that's, I think, something I would encourage people to think about as well. Yeah, and just that one good point, uh, uh, focused early childhood intervention for disadvantaged kids is very different from universal pre-K. Uh, so, uh, and Heckman, uh, who's the really the highest profile, most uh, sort of influential champion of early childhood intervention, he's a Nobel Prize winning economist from the University of Chicago, uh, he uh, argues there's no basis for thinking that, uh, that uh, preschool for regular kids, uh, universal preschool for regular kids is gonna have any impact at all. They get what they get from preschool, they get it from home anyway. Uh, meanwhile, you have the scaling problem as well. Uh, so uh, this is an area where concern about this topic uh, has, has led uh, people on the left to embrace uh, uh, universal pre-K uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a great response. I don't think it is. Uh, let me ask you as sort of a follow-up to that, if either of you has read Charles Murray's new book and if you think it intersects with the questions you're talking about. 
uh, I, I have read uh, Charles Burry's book, and um, it's very interesting. Um, I would say in terms of the description of the symptoms of a social problem, uh, uh, I'm in complete agreement with what uh, Murray uh, wrote, and indeed he goes into much greater detail about these growing class divisions uh, than, than I do in my brief uh, ebook. Um, and they have to do not only, uh, so the, the division between college-educated folks and everybody else isn't just an in income, it's in a lot of things, and, and more and more high school grads and high school dropouts look more alike than high school grads and college grads look alike. So in terms of labor force participation, in terms of, uh, of uh, uh, family structure and, and marital stability, big and growing divides between the highly skilled and everybody else, in terms of uh, health habits, smoking, dieting, fitness, big gap between the college ed educated and everybody else, in terms of community involvement, uh, belonging to, to, to civic organizations, voting, big difference between college folks and everybody else. So you really are seeing this really creepy bifurcation uh, in American life uh, between the highly skilled and everybody else along a whole host of different dimensions. Uh, so in calling attention to that uh, issue, I think Charles uh, does uh, a great work, and in his provocative choice to focus only on white Americans, uh, I think he, he uh, cleverly uh, took uh, race and ethnicity out of the analysis, that if you see these trends happening amongst uh, native-born uh, white Americans, then it's clear that what we're talking about is a class issue, not just uh, a race or ethnicity uh, issue. Uh, when it comes to diagnosis of the problem and prescriptions for the problem, uh, I uh, uh, differ quite uh, strongly with, uh, with uh, Charles. Uh, basically, in uh, Coming Apart, uh, he ascribes this, uh, this kind of divergence uh, uh, to flat-out moral decline, uh, that we have lost our founding virtues of work, family, and faith. Uh, somehow or another, uh, the, the, the 60s moral revolution uh, uh, is the cause of this decline. Uh, so that doesn't make any sense to me uh, because the people who are most socially liberal, the people who have most internalized the uh, moral revolution of the 60s uh, are uh, the, uh, the bobo professionals living in blue states who are doing wonderfully. They are the poster child now for uh, for all of the bourgeois virtues. They have extremely high uh, uh, marital stability rates. They have extremely high labor force participation rates. Their income is good. They're highly educated. They're doing all the right things with this new relativistic uh, kind of, uh, of morality. Uh, and what we're seeing, uh, uh, and so to me, the idea that our morals have gotten out of whack uh, doesn't make any sense. Uh, what has happened, though, uh, is uh, that uh, the skills that we, for sure, the 60s did usher in uh, changes uh, in, in, in uh, sort of how moral norms are enforced. Uh, once upon a time, uh, they were much more enforced through external pressure, peer pressure, shaming, ostracism. Uh, the norm of marital stability was enforced. If you watch Mad Men, the divorcee moves into the neighborhood and all the wives shun her, right? We don't do any of that kind of stuff anymore. Those external props to norms are gone, and we rely much more now on individual conscience. Uh, so 
that works fine for people at the top because they have been trained from birth with this kind of uh, uh, fluency with abstraction or comfort with complexity that I talk about. And one important element of that is future orientation, long time horizons, and very well-developed habits of, uh, of deferred gratification. Uh, so uh, among we, college-educated folks, do the right thing uh, by constantly making trade-offs between this abstract, hypothetically imagined future self and his interests and the concrete barrage of, of, of present self desires and impulses. And we balance those, and we've been trained from birth to do so. Uh, those kind of skills are nowhere near as well developed in the working class and underclass. And so when this new cultural freedom hit them, they didn't have the skills to flourish in this environment. And we have seen uh, a big increase in lots of uh, dysfunctional behavior uh, uh, as a result. So my uh, read is that this is a skill problem, not an ethical lapse, uh, and therefore the remedies are quite different. Hi, Clint Townsend with Students for Liberty. Uh, Mr. Lindsay, you talk a lot about the role of culture, and I think culture is very important to advancing uh, the free society. So I'm wondering if you think that the libertarian program should work to incorporate as part of its system um, more than the politics of live and let live, but also a cultural commitments. And I guess what I'm getting at is this relatively new line of thought um, called thick libertarianism that people at like Bleeding Heart Libertarians have been talking about incorporating values um, into, our, into our politics as well. So I'm a big tent libertarian kind of guy. Uh, let a thousand flowers bloom. There's lots of stuff that libertarians ought to be doing to, making the, uh, to make the world a better place. But I think absolutely, uh, uh, if we're really uh, interested in rolling back uh, the welfare state, uh, committing to developing civil society solutions to social problems is a big part of, of getting there. Uh, talk about uh, privatizing uh, the post office uh, was just pure sort of, you know, libertarian uh, sort of theory uh, until we had private sector actors like Federal Express who could demonstrate that, uh, that uh, we don't need this government monopoly to, to get information shared amongst people. We have more efficient ways. Uh, so uh, when the private sector steps in and shows that it can do something or the uh, uh, much better than the public sector, that's often an important ingredient uh, in, in a story of liberalization. Uh, so I think, and I echo uh, what Raihan said, uh, it would be great to see more private foundations and more libertarian philanthropy uh, aimed uh, at addressing these issues and showing uh, that this is a much better way to tackle the problem than to rely on the bureaucratic state that helped, that did a lot to get us in this mess in the first place. Yes. Light blue shirt. Eric Poplanski here. Um, is this on? Maybe. Um, I was just wondering, uh, semi-well-known company Apple has gone on record as saying that they would not be opposed to transferring their manufacturing plants domestically, but one of the biggest barriers is highly skilled human capital workers to facilitate uh, their demands. Something like 30,000 engineers is uh, what would be required. And I was just wondering what your opinion is on the role of the Fed or private industry in um, encouraging the growth of that human capital beyond that 30, 
percent stagnant rate that you've stated since about the 80s to to something that's obviously higher yeah it's i mean it's uh it's certainly the case uh that uh that the particular form of human capital that 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 is expertise in science technology engineering and math the, the stem fields uh is an area where uh, the U.S. record uh, over the past uh, uh, generation or so has been really lousy, right? So uh, for whatever reasons, uh, the number of, of uh, the absolute number of STEM grads today is about the same as it was 30 or 40 years ago, uh, even though the country has grown much, uh, much uh, larger, even though the number of people in college has grown much larger. So the percentage of college grads with those degrees has gone way down. And the reason the number is as high as it is is because of a huge increase in the number of foreign students who have gotten those uh, STEM degrees. So the absolute number of American, native-born Americans with them has plummeted. And uh, happily, uh, we are in a position where, uh, where we can route around uh, that problem by uh, attracting the best and brightest from all over the world to the extent that current law allows. Uh, I would like for current law to allow much more than it does. Uh, but for the health of American society, I, I agree uh, that, uh, that uh, we are uh, that America has culturally turned away uh, from a focus on uh, those fields that are most important to economic innovation, and that's not a great uh, sign for the future vitality of the American economy. Okay, right behind there. Um, Mike Laff, uh, Mr. Lindsay, I was wondering if you thought that the growing uh, income inequality is maybe a product of some of the choices we made regarding uh, low um, income tax for the top income earners, uh, the low minimum wage, and the, the greater disparity among managers and executives in terms of their pay versus their employees. And it seems in my experience that, especially now, labor is cheap. So you, you, the income you earn is the income you get in the, when you come in the door, and the only way to earn more is when you leave. So I was wondering if you think that maybe the political choices we make are contributing to that disparity. And then on a, t on a tangent, if you excuse me, um, the, the top income tier that you describe when you're with the fund manager, maybe the people earning six figures to seven figures, they seem Eight to figures, be earning... Nine figures. Okay. Um, it seems that we've created, they now live in isolation to a point where they can opt out of the public community, meaning public transportation, public health, and public education. Maybe transportation and health, they don't even care about and hostile to it. In education, they may not need it, mainly because they can buy something better. So I was wondering, what, what do you think of that? Okay, on the first point, uh, here in this book, I'm just looking at one dimension of inequality, which is skills-based inequality. Uh, for the overall pattern of income distribution in the United States, which has overall moved uh, in, a, in the direction of greater inequality since the early 1970s, there are a whole bunch of different factors going on. Uh, and uh, I actually wrote a paper back in 2009 called uh, Nostalgianomics, which looks at the ways in which public policies and changing social norms have contributed uh, to rising inequality. Uh, and uh, so uh, you can find that uh, that paper on the uh, on on the Cato website uh, to get my to get my oh it's out there too good out there. Uh, so uh, uh, I'll, I think I'll just uh, leave it there except that I will say that basically uh, our economic policies have gotten better and our social norms have gotten more liberal and both of those in surprising ways uh, have contributed to a, a, a greater spread uh, in incomes on the question about uh, sort of 
the, the successful hiving off and living amongst themselves and living in isolation and sort of doing their own thing and being disconnected from the rest of society. Uh, uh, that is certainly something that Charles Murray talks about in Coming Apart. Um, and it, it absolutely is a phenomenon that we see. Uh, we've seen an increase in assortative mating uh, along educational lines. Uh, so that uh, as education and schooling has become more important, uh, it, it, it tends now for uh, men and women of similar educational backgrounds to, to marry, uh, or men and men, or women and women, um, but uh, uh, in a way that didn't used to be the case, uh, which will then exacerbate inequality because uh, you've got two high-income earners now in the same household, where once upon a time you had one. Um, as to the residential segregation, some of that is, I think, uh, natural and nothing one can do about it. And it's, it's people like to live around people like them, and I think that's okay. Uh, where uh, uh, things get really problematic is the extent to which government interventions in the economy actually facilitate this kind of uh, uh, segregation kind of behavior, and that is through uh, land use regulations. Uh, it's uh, much easier to have uh, uh, all the rich people living together if you've zoned out uh, any kind of other housing in that area. Uh, and so you see lots of places uh, zoning out uh, uh, more modest income uh, housing from their area, and that contributes to, uh, to the kind of segregation that you're talking about. There's also an interesting dimension when you look at the proliferation of occupational licensing, a phenomenon that you, you have discussed on a number of occasions. When you think about transit, for example, people tend to neglect private mass transit. For example, if you think about jitney vans uh, you know, in many urban neighborhoods, these are a crucial public service, and they're also an opportunity for many people who are less skilled to find remunerative employment, yet there are you know, very high regulatory barriers. So I think when you think about some of those opportunities, those are things that wouldn't necessarily mitigate inequality overall, but there are things that would create real opportunities for people who now uh, don't have them. Okay, let's see. Um, right there in the back, and then go ahead and bring a microphone down to this woman near the front, and she can have the next question. Um, uh, you both discussed uh, the erosion of traditional family structures uh, among non-high school graduates and non-college graduates uh, as contributing to this inequality. I was wondering about the extent to which you believe mass incarceration might have contributed to the erosion of family structures and also whether you see a role for criminal justice reform as part of the solution. So that's, uh, it's, it's in the book, uh, and absolutely. Uh, so. Uh, it's an issue that has gotten a lot more attention in recent years, and yet I still think it's woefully unreported, underreported. Uh, the shocking outlier that the United States is uh, when it comes to, uh, uh, to locking people up in cages. Um, over 1% of American adults uh, live behind bars. Uh, that's not very land of the free-ish. Um, it's uh, five to 10 times the rate uh, in Western Europe and Japan. It's higher than Russia. It's higher than China. Um, and uh, it, the inmates are, are overwhelmingly uh, uh, African-American and Hispanic, uh, disproportionately uh, African-American and Hispanic. Something like one-third of African-American males can expect at some point in their life uh, to, uh, to go through the criminal justice system. And the impact that has on family formation and, and community life uh, 
uh, in low-income areas is, is just nothing short of cataclysmic. Uh, it, it absolutely pushes uh, uh, towards uh, family breakdown because there simply aren't marriageable men around. They're locked up or they're felons who can't get, uh, can't get work. Uh, so uh, uh, the lowest hanging fruit in penal reform uh, is, uh, is drug law reform. There's, I don't know, something like 2.2 million people behind bars right now and 400,000 of them are there on nonviolent drug charges. So that's a big chunk of the issue. Um, beyond that, uh, I would, without going into any detail, I would point out uh, the work of Mark Kleiman, uh, an economist at UCLA, uh, on uh, ways in which uh, using uh, very short but very swift and, and, and certain uh, uh, incarceration uh, for uh, parolees and probationers uh, can dramatically reduce uh, uh, criminality in that group of people and therefore keep them from going back and being recidivists. Uh, and, uh, and I think of everything I've read, the, the stuff he's talked about, and there's a particularly a pilot program in, in Hawaii that was very successful, points the way to the possibility uh, that we could actually have uh, uh, both uh, less crime and less punishment. And I believe that's the title of his book. Uh there's also, you know, if you look at, there's a wonderful new book called uh, The City That Became Safe by Franklin Zimmering, which is about New York City. And one, that he, one of the things that he documents is that between 1990 and 2000, you had a steep drop in crime. Between 2000 and 2010, you had another steep drop in crime that was as big in terms of magnitude as that first drop, yet there was actually a decrease in the number of people in New York City who had been incarcerated. So I think when you're looking at, uh, you know, and also the work of Kleiman, you can see these scenarios in which we could actually reduce the amount of victimization and the amount of incarceration which you know, is obviously a win-win outcome. And I think that the implications would be very big because when we talk about social distance, when you're looking at the bottom 10th, when you're looking at that slice of society, this is a slice of society in which mass incarceration has had a, a disproportionately large impact. And so when you look at kind of hardcore poverty and stickiness at the bottom, given that social mobility is another anxiety a lot of folks have, that's something that would have a really enormous effect, yet is almost never part of the public policy conversation on the left or the right, which is dispiriting. I actually heard a vice president of the Heritage Foundation make the point at a small meeting with uh, Obama's drug czar that even when you don't incarcerate people, the fact that a huge percentage of young African-American men have an arrest, an indictment, a criminal record of some sort makes them uh, makes very difficult for them to get into the job market. and even with the Heritage Foundation expressing this concern, we don't seem to have seen much progress from the Obama administration. Uh, yes, right here. Yes, I'd like to know why the income gap between high school graduates and college graduates hasn't been sufficient to increase the number of people, and especially young men, going to college. Uh, do they need affirmative action for boys? Or yeah, I, I, So I think uh, that is the puzzle, right? So the question is, uh, You've got <clears throat> demand outracing supply, so the price uh, goes up. Why then isn't there a price response? Why? So it's it's not surprising that, that the premium will fluctuate over time, but it's weird that it went way up and then stayed there for decades. Uh, and in particular, as you said, why uh, is, has it been completely flat amongst men uh, in their response? Um, and uh, I think there are two rival uh, interpretations. There's the sort of genetic fatalism. There's only so many, so many smart people in America. 
we've got all of them in college now, we're maxed out. Um, or the cultural question, that is that the way uh, that the reason we don't have more people going to college is because we don't have more people capable of doing college-level work. Now, let me, let me back up. There's a, there's a third hypothesis, too, and that is money. Uh, so, uh, and that is uh, that even though uh, the rewards of going to college have gone up, uh, the cost of going to college has, has gone up a lot, too. And so maybe we're not seeing higher college attendance and completion rates because of uh, runaway college costs. And so on the left, you see the response that we need to subsidize college attendance more. The problem with that is, is it relaxes budget constraints on colleges, so they boost the tuition more, and you just go on this spiral. Um, and furthermore, uh, it doesn't look uh, like, uh, like lack of, uh, of finances is, is a major factor in why uh, more people don't go to college. Um, Jim Heckman, again, I'll rely on him. Uh, he has studied this, and he's just about the most careful econometrician in the world. Uh, and he has concluded that these short-term credit constraints, the inability uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, borrow against your future income gains uh, to, uh, uh, to go to, to finance college, that those credit constraints affect about 8% of would-be college students. For everybody else, the main reason they're not going to school uh, is that they can't do the work. Um, and so, uh, and, and, and why, uh, are, uh, why have you seen this big supply response amongst kids of college-educated parents and no supply response whatsoever uh, amongst uh, the kids of high school-educated parents? Uh, I argue that a big part of that is uh, systematic cultural differences in family life and in community life. And I spell those out in the book. One small thing is also you actually have some constraints on the number of suppliers as well, and also in terms of suppliers being able to offer innovative instructional models. Uh, so, you know, we've seen for-profit educational providers uh, demonized a lot recently, and I think that there are certainly legitimate criticisms. But one thing that's very distinctive about for-profit educational providers uh, is that they tend to serve a far larger number of non-traditional students. Now, uh, Brink had referred to college completion rates, and one, one really interesting issue is that there are a ton of people who start, perhaps with that wage premium in mind, yet there's a markedly smaller number of people who actually finish. And when you look at persistence, there are a lot of different issues at different tiers. So, for example, when you look at selective colleges and universities, which are, you know, kind of admittedly a somewhat smaller share of the pie, you often have a mismatch problem uh, for students who benefit from large preferences, uh, not just racial preferences, but a variety of other preferences as well. Uh, so that's kind of a small part of the problem, but that matters partly because some of those students would be able to flourish in other environments. Um, and then, you know, but I think that actually the deeper problem, the absence of innovative higher ed models is, in my view, a, a function of tight regulation of the sector and also kind of where uh, the kind of institutions to which subsidies flow. And we are seeing today, uh, and I talk about this in the book uh, a little bit, um, we, we look like we may be on the cusp of something really revolutionary happening in, in higher education with, with uh, the combination of online uh, learning possibilities and third-party certification. In particular, if we can, if we can separate uh, teaching kids versus certifying that they've learned something, uh, then, uh, and that credential that you've learned something then can have uh, currency in, uh, in, uh, uh, amongst employers, uh, then uh, you've, you've, you may have created a gigantic decrease in the cost of, of, uh, of, of uh, earning a higher, uh, you know, getting a higher degree. Uh, and therefore, that, that may be enough of a, of a price break that we, it really would make a difference in getting more people uh, to, to, uh, to get more education. Uh, but a lot of that uh, is, uh, is bottled up now uh, by 
uh, uh, A, standards for accreditation, uh, B, uh, problems amongst schools in recognizing credits from other institutions, uh, and, uh, and C, continued subsidy of the, of the brick and mortar four-year college model. Okay, a question right here and then over here. Thank you. I'm Ahmed Kassam, and I'm from the Medicare and Social Security cohort. Although like a good bourgeois, I'm adding value to society. Um, I would like you to uh, broaden on the area of human capital. Uh, we are all human capital. And advance in society of subsistence to what we are now is due to intellectual capital, particularly intellectual talent. And yet, some, uh, anyway, and all economic development, cultural development, is from human beings with that sort of talent, as you made out. The, um, America, for 300 years, imported intellectual talent with the vigor. And uh, you, know, you, had, you created a bourgeoisie and not a uh, lump, sorry, lumpy proletariat. Yet, there is this uh, angst and uh, reaction against this, as this lady first pointed out. And uh, Bill Gates said that for every HP1 people he could hire, he has four Americans, five Americans. Uh, American Enterprise Institute last year did a study, came to the same conclusion. And uh, Steve Jobs told the president that he's, he's employing 700,000 Chinese in a Taiwanese factory, by the way, uh, because he can't hire 30,000 engineers. To get an American from zero to 26 to match the same qualification as a HP1 is a million dollars opportunity cost, if not more. And uh, finally, <laughs> make my point, um, the idea that the uh, HP1 depresses wages or salaries is because of government policy. You can't change jobs, you, your wife cannot jo work, she can't even get a driving license. So why is this going on? The last country to do that policy of ejecting and rejecting intellectual talent was Nazi Germany. I think there's some parallels there. So uh, again, I emphatically agree uh, that one of, uh, one of the reasons for optimism about uh, American prospects uh, down the line is, uh, is our continued ability to attract uh, brilliant, energetic, ambitious people uh, from uh, around the world. Uh, and. Uh, and so I would, uh, uh, I think, maintaining relatively liberal immigration rules and making them more liberal than they are today uh, are all very important. Uh, something like, uh, there's various measures of the top uh, uh, high-tech startups over the past 20, 30 uh, years. And generally, these measures show that something like 25 to 30% of them have at least one immigrant co-founder. Uh, so immigrants have been a gigantic disproportionate uh, uh, part of, of uh, economic dynamism uh, since mass immigration restarted uh, in the mid 60s and uh, and we we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't throw that away that wonderful asset in your uh, book you described how computers and uh, information technology are substitutes for low-skilled labor and are complements to high-skilled labor. And that is great for those of us who have high-skilled labor. However, computers are now doing things like uh, winning at Jeopardy, diagnosing diseases, composing music, and they're getting better and better at these things. Uh, when will 
computers begin to crowd out high-skilled labor? Are there countervailing trends? Uh, if there aren't, this begins to look fairly dystopian, doesn't it? So uh, one really good book on this subject is uh, Eric Brynjolfsson's Race Against the Machine. And he, uh, he uses this metaphor that we're, we're about to enter the second half of the chessboard. Uh, so there's this old story about this guy who was going to advise a king about something, and the king says, how much do you want uh, me to pay you? And he goes, just give me one grain of rice on the first uh, square of the chessboard, two on the second, and yada, yada, yada. And about halfway through the chessboard, the, uh, the king realized he was going to be bankrupted and uh, had the advisor's head chopped off. Um, so, uh, so we've seen Moore's Law trundling along now for 40 years uh, with the number of transistors on a chip doubling every two years or so, uh, and, uh, and therefore the capacity of automation to replace human labor has gone up accordingly. And we're just starting to see uh, recently, and we may see a lot more in the future, uh, of, of substitution of computing power for what we have uh, previously considered to be high-skilled work. Um, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, Watson, the, the Jeopardy champion. Uh, Watson is now being retooled uh, for medical diagnosis so that we can uh, replace uh, crotchety people like House uh, with, uh, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> a very compliant machine. Um, uh, likewise, there's uh, interesting, uh, for me as a recovering lawyer, uh, interesting new technology of, of uh, sort of intelligent document review. Uh, so one of the, the horrors of being a low-level associate is being on some huge case or huge deal where you're just going through boxes of documents looking for magic words. Uh, and, uh, and now uh, computers can do that with greater accuracy than people. Uh, again, wipe, <clears throat> saving people from horrible uh, soul-numbing drudgery, but also uh, reducing their employment prospects. Uh, so I think uh, uh, the, the, uh, the long-term... Um, prospects are, are, are not dystopian, uh, they're liberating, um, but, uh, but they do mean that the particular kind of revenge of the nerds economy we've had in recent decades may not be uh, persistent in the, in the, in the longer term. Uh, and that is, uh, people who are uh, really brainy, really book smart, may be not blessed with social skills, uh, have done fine in American life in the past generation because their, their brain power is scarce and it's a hot commodity. But over time, uh, uh, what could ultimately become the scarce resource is empathy, charm, getting along with other people, being a good teammate, doing the kinds of things uh, that computers just can't do. Uh, and, uh, and so we may see the, uh, uh, the... Just can't do yet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so uh, we may see uh, the kinds of skills most richly rewarded in the marketplace shift over time and put less stress on getting a college degree, but still very much stress on fluency with abstraction, long-term planning, organization, motivation, big social networks, all of those kinds of things. But the, the purely sort of intellectual part of it may become less important over time. Okay, we're about to run out of time. I hate to do this, but you've had your hand up a long time, so I'm going to take the last question there. I'm Michael Castle-Miller from the Public International Law and Policy Group. Uh, I've been thinking about what the implications of your ideas on um, for developing nations could be. Uh, in, in particular, it seems you know a lot of uh, nations have kind of made the smart choice to uh, create environments more favorable to foreign investments. So 
set up major light manufacturing or textile plants. Um, but I'm wondering uh, if it, it might even help develop human capital further or, or to a much greater degree with by creating environments that are more favorable for entrepreneurship and small businesses. And is, is that something you've looked at in your studies as uh, something that generates the kind of human capital that you've been talking about also? So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, and and I, I look at, uh, so there's, there's different kinds of entrepreneurship. Uh, most, if we use it generally to mean starting and owning your own business, uh, then the vast majority of it is, uh, is not aimed at rapid growth and is not aimed at innovation. It's the corner new restaurant or dry cleaner. Uh, and, but it is aimed at, uh, at autonomy, being your own boss, uh, and feeling like uh, you've got a stake in, in the larger society, and that's incredibly wholesome, uh, and, uh, and, and an incredibly attractive opportunity, particularly amongst the less credentialed, uh, and an opportunity that is systematically stymied at a thousand different points uh, today uh, through regulatory policy um, uh, in the United States and, uh, and, and other advanced countries. Um, as far as developing countries are concerned, lots of them right now are in the, in the fun part of this, how economic growth makes a smarter and unequal story. They're, they're just getting smarter. They're, they're, their societies are getting more complex. Educational levels are soaring. Uh, there's absolutely real pitfalls and challenges for developing countries to, to make the transition. <clears throat> First, there's the transition from sort of poverty to middle income, and then there's the transition from middle income uh, to, uh, to rich. Uh, and there's a lot of kind of inter interventionist crony capitalist stuff that works fine getting you from uh, poverty to middle income, but then becomes a real barrier to making the next step. And that's probably the biggest barrier these days in developing countries. Uh, you hit that middle income trap and, uh, and you stop developing. Uh, so, uh, so actually, uh, developing countries will have to work hard uh, to get to the point where they have the problems that we do. Just one thing to add to that, you'll see in countries that have most markedly improved their business climates recently, you see a pattern. Uh, Georgia, where there might be some backsliding. Uh, Rwanda, El Salvador. These are all countries that have actually experienced tremendous conflict. And so when you look at the origins of the state, you know, it was the situation which, well, we face this need for revenue to finance wars, and then we actually had to in, you know, embrace these policies that accommodated greater economic growth by necessity. Uh, and similarly, if you look at Somaliland, fascinating country because it's not recognized as sovereign by most of the world, yet you have a country in which you have a more or less quite high-functioning government, partly because Somaliland is a country that has no point source natural resources, it receives no aid, and so the state, the only way that it can actually have the legitimacy to govern in a society of shepherds uh, is to actually demonstrate its value. So I think that one problem, one barrier is that really societies will oftentimes only embarrass, uh, embrace these reforms that involve relinquishing power if they absolutely must. And that's a big challenge for the United States, as we are frankly sufficiently affluent. Uh, and actually the, the slice of society that's incarcerated and what have you, these guys suffer from tremendous social isolation. And, and then I think that that's actually the real reason why you need moral urgency around these problems, because it, we're rich enough to accommodate really bad policy. All right. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Brink Lindsay and Raihan Salam. The book is Human Capitalism. If you buy it today on Amazon, Brink will email you his autograph. <laughs> <laughs>
Lunch is upstairs in the George M. Yeager conference room. You can get there by the spiral staircase or the elevator. I did forget to mention for uh, the troglodytes in the audience, there is a, uh, a hardcover edition coming out in the spring. And, and actually, everyone should buy both because it will have expanded material in it. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thanks for